And now, broadcasting from a two-person hot tub, high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK and Rick. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Tuesday, January 19th, 2021, and I have my friend Pamela Dunley, the president and CEO of Elmhurst Memorial Hospital on the line. How are you, Pam? I'm very good, but I'm looking out at a dreary sky, and I understand there's been some snowflakes, although it's not snowing at the moment. So I guess it is winter, and I have to believe it. I did see a little bit of snow uh, a little while ago, so uh, hopefully it's it's not much and uh, there won't be much accumulation. So big news today, the governor has uh, put our region back into Tier 2 COVID mitigation restrictions. So uh, things, uh, at least according to the governor, are getting a little bit better. Are you seeing it on your end in terms of your patient census? Well, I think we're kind of stabilized, so I will tell you, from last week, we had 43 positive inpatients with six on vents, and this week we have 42 positive patients with three on vents. And um, last week we had four waiting results, this week we have two waiting results. Of our deaths, we went from 148 to 155. And in DuPage County, last week, there were 66,414 positive patients. This week, there's 68,970 positive patients. Deaths in DuPage County went from 1,109 up to 1,151. And for the state, last week, there was 1 million and, and uh, 1,000,000.4 uh, positive patients. This uh, week, there's... 1 million point seven positive patients and um, deaths went from 19,365 to 20,119. Um, good news is that we did discharge. We went from 1,277 patients discharged to 1,311 patients discharged and the recovery rate for the state continues to be at 97%. I think we'll get to 98 eventually. Uh, I doubt it. I think 97 is where we're going to stay. So the um, conventional wisdom on the street, and I don't know if it's like that within the walls of the hospital, is that if your loved one gets put on a ventilator, that's that's probably a death sentence. And so a lot of folks are almost discouraging hospitals from putting their loved ones on ventilators. But do those people really need the ventilators? And, and chances are they... They may pass anyway if they didn't have the ventilation. So unfortunately, there are some patients that are very high-risk patients. Usually they have an underlying pulmonary or lung issue where the mortality rate or the death rate is, is higher. And the ventilator does help provide support in breathing where they can, um, when they can't no longer breathe on their own. Um, we have seen cases where the ventilator has saved lives and that people have successfully come off a ventilator. If you remember the one patient that was young that um, we discharged and had the big um, send-off because he had been in the hospital for so long way mm -hmm. back in uh, March, he had been on a ventilator for quite a while and was able to come off and is having his life back and the ventilator saved him. Um, I think back then we used the ventilator more often. I think what you're hearing is 
we try not to use the ventilator and we've used other ways of being able to help people breathe that we've learned through this process that we didn't know in the beginning. But there are families that are, um, you know, are afraid of the ventilator and we understand that. Have you had any that you're aware of that have actually refused to be put on a ventilator or their loved one? Yes, we have had cases where families and patients together decide that they do not want to go on a ventilator, and what they're really deciding is that they want comfort care and they want to have it be natural. And if they recover, they're they will be happy. But if they're they pass, they just don't want to go through the process of a ventilator. And so we try to help keep them comfortable during that time. Obviously, uh, medical professionals. Uh, have learned a lot about this disease uh, throughout the pandemic and treatment has changed. Are there uh, any current treatments being used um, other than the the ones that were used early on, like um, convalescent plasma, et cetera, that are being used right now? Well, we're still using remdesivir. We use a drug called Ectemera. We use monoclonal antibodies, which is the antibodies that you give um, before someone ends up needing to be hospitalized and, and um, that helps prevent the illness from getting worse. Uh, we've used steroids, we've used uh, plasma, and we've used antibiotics. So, um, you know, there's a lot of different things. The other thing is we, in helping people breathe, we learned early on that if you have somebody prone or lay on their stomach, it helps expand the lungs and it helps them breathe and helps keep them off the ventilator. So we do that with patients. It's sometimes hard for patients to want to lay on their stomach for long periods of time, but it does help in preventing them from needing to go on a ventilator. So some of these treatments that a patient might receive at home, like you mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, the antibodies, do those need to be administered uh, intravenously or can they be taken orally? No, the monoclonal antibodies have to be re- administered intravenously. So you're, you're doing it in a controlled setting, whether it's an outpatient emergency department or an immediate care, uh, that's where you're going to have that done. But then you go home from there, you don't end up being admitted. And then while you're at home, you'll recover, but it helps with the recovery. And as it relates to convalescent plasma, are the supplies still sufficient or is there, or is there a shortage currently? And are there any particular blood types that are needed? So right now, there's still a high demand for convalescent plasma, and so yes, there still is a need. Uh, All blood types are in demand, but the most uh, necessary ones that we have more shortage of is an AB blood or a B blood. So if you have those, please, and you're able to donate if you have had um, antibodies, that would be great. Uh, Potential convalescent plasma donors must have had a confirmed diagnosis of COVID-19 by their physician and and laboratory testing, and they must be symptom-free for 14 days before being eligible to donate. And individuals who receive uh, a COVID-19 vaccine does not make you eligible for convalescent plasma. It's only if you um, have had COVID and you have um, tested positive for COVID. Does that have to be like within the last 90 days? You know, you said it has to be at least 14. Uh, No, I don't think they have a 90-day requirement, not that I'm aware of, but they have to be symptom-free for 14 days. And what you do is you visit um, the website, Versity, V-E-R, rsiti.org 
forward slash COVID-19 plasma, and it will give you all the information if you want to donate. You've talked over the last several months of staff shortages and a need in certain areas. Do you still have some shortages, uh, either in paid positions or volunteers? And if so, how would people go about um, applying for such a position? Well, I, we're always hiring because there's a lot of turnover, but I think right now we're, we're doing pretty good. I think we do have open positions, and if you're interested in a position, go on our website and um, look for what open positions there are, and then you just fill out the application online, and they would give you a call. And for volunteers, um, you know, a lot of the volunteers haven't come back yet, but we are sure they will when they all get vaccinated and they feel more comfortable coming into the hospital. As it relates to the second doses of the vaccine, um, both Pfizer and Moderna, the last time we spoke, you said that you had enough of those second doses on hand. Do they continue to come in at the rate you need them to come in so people can have their second vaccination on time? So far, yes, we've been receiving them, so we're very grateful that that's happening. And as of now, can you give me an idea of how many hospital employees have been vaccinated and what percentage of the total population that's eligible has been vaccinated? Um, right now, 61% of our employees have been vaccinated, and that number continues to grow. You know, a lot of people still uh, need to have, um, uh, are waiting to see how other people respond to the vaccine, and so we're doing still a lot of education to encourage our employees to get vaccinated. Some, some of it is them having trouble getting signing up, and so we're helping them get signed up. Um, but right now, you know, we, we would like to get to 100% of our employees. We may not get there. We do know about 10% of the employees were already had COVID, so they may not be getting vaccinated because they've had COVID. So we're thinking there's about 30% of our employees we still need to get vaccinated. And are there certain employees that aren't eligible because they maybe they work in an operations center away from patients or something like that? Well, all of our employees are eligible. We, because they work for a health system, they're all eligible. How many unused first doses approximately do you have on site at EE Health currently? I don't know how many we have. I know that we don't hold the vaccines, so we're constantly giving the vaccines. And as many as we get in, we try to give out. So we're not in the process of holding vaccines. There's um, uh, been reports that the state will start vaccinating next week and uh, basically a week from yesterday, I believe. Um, what's preventing the vaccinations from being given right away? Is it supply or the ability to you know, get the folks through the lines? What What's holding it up from what you see at the local level? Well, I think we still have a number of healthcare workers in Group 1A that haven't gotten vaccinated, whether they're healthcare workers that are not affiliated with a hospital, but they still need to be vaccinated. So we're trying to get that done. Um, DuPage County is looking to move forward to 1B uh, as soon as 1A has been substantially completed getting vaccinated, and they're thinking it will be sometime around or after January 25th. Can you kind of give us an idea, I know you did a few weeks ago, of what individuals fall into Group 1B? I'd be happy to because it's very hard to remember. These are so many different people. So 1B is persons age 65 years and older 
1B also contains frontline essential workers defined as those workers who are essential for the functioning of society and are at the highest risk of exposure. And that includes the following. First responders, which are firefighters, including volunteer firefighters, law enforcement officers, 911 dispatch, um, security personnel, school officers, and any EMS personnel who were not under Phase 1A, correction officers, inmates, jail officers, juvenile faculty staff, workers providing in-person support, and uh, food and agricultural workers, processing plants, veterinary health, livestock services, animal care, postal service workers, manufacturing workers, industrial production of goods for distribution to retail, wholesale, or manufacturers, grocery store workers, which includes baggers, cashiers, stockers, uh, pickup customer service, public transit workers, including flight crew, bus drivers, train conductors, taxi drivers, paratransit drivers, in-person support, ride-sharing services. Education, so congregate child care, pre-K through 12th grade, teachers, principals, student support, student aides, and daycare workers, and shelters and adult daycare, homeless shelters, women's shelters, adult day, and drop-in. I don't see any banks on there, though. I'm sorry. No, and no podcasters either, of course. <laughs> and no podcasters either. <laughs> um, but you know, the, the significant one there, I think, um, outside of you know police and fire and, and things like that are the teachers. That's a... That's a big group, and that'll hopefully help uh, the whole education system. That that's uh, I mean, when you read that list, it's a pretty big list, isn't it? It is a pretty big list, and that's why we're expecting a lot of people in this one B group. And we've been ramping up to try to be able to be ready to take on everybody who needs to come in and get their vaccination. I uh, I saw on the Illinois Department of Health's website that as of a week ago, they had had claimed that the state had received about 870,000 doses and only 354,000 had actually been administered. Is that just because they've been receiving it quicker all of a sudden and it takes a few days to get it out there or they're just having trouble from what you can see figuring out how to actually get this uh, up and running? You know, I, I really know that the state is doing the best job they can, and I don't know what's preventing everything from coming out. I do know that as soon as we get our supplies, which we've been really lucky getting them as we need them, we're utilizing them, and we're making sure that we are operating at our, our maximum capacity. Is Do you consider, um, obviously, the Illinois Department of Health is considered a regulator of the hospital. Is the DuPage County Health Department a regulator or more of a partner? Well, they work with IDPH and help to set standards, and so they're a partner to both of us, but we have to follow their directions. And as of uh, what you've heard today, have there been any real severe side effects among hospital employees? I know you've said there have been some minor ones. Have there been any severe ones yet? Um. There's been a few people that have had a little more than minor reactions, but nothing significant that we're aware of. Well, that's that's great news because I think that's what everybody's really paying attention to, and it's important that people feel confident and they're willing to go out and get these vaccinations, and I hope that most of society will. I know there'll be some that won't, but um, we shall see. So is there anything that people can be doing from a proactive standpoint 
to make sure they're not missed when their their numbers called, so to speak, to get this vaccine, a place where they can sign up or um, whether it be the hospital or a health department? People can keep an eye out in their emails and their texts that come to them because information will start flowing to them as soon as they're able to get signed up. They can call the county and the county can help them direct them to wherever the county is directing. If you are an, a patient of anybody in our health system, as soon as you are eligible to begin getting your vaccination, we will be sending information out. So they don't have to worry that we're not going to be reaching out. We will be reaching out and we will be trying to get everybody scheduled. I think, um, you know, it's a very frustrating time for everybody. It's uh, a frustrating time for our government officials, for our healthcare workers and the general public. And uh, we all, we all want what's best. And I know, uh, I know it's not easy for you to take some of these questions, but I, I appreciate the fact that you're willing to take them week after week. And it's probably <laughs> frustrating because you, you don't have all the answers, but uh um, one of these days, I'm hoping you say we're ready. Let's let's go. Get come get your your vaccine. That's what everybody's ready for, and I wish we could do it today. Hopefully, after the 25th, it's going to be a large group. As you heard the numbers, I do want to say that we were trying to count how many physicians have gotten the vaccine so far because I think it's, it means something when people know physicians are willing to get this vaccine. And I think we've had over 800 physicians get the vaccine. So between the whole health system, not just at Elmhurst Hospital, but for between Edward and Elmhurst, we've had uh, over 800 physicians. And I think that's important for people to know. So um, not only are physicians getting it, administration is getting it, nurses are getting it, healthcare workers are getting it. We all believe that this is very important and we want it available to our community because we know how scared people have been and how tired people are about what they've been going through. And this is the beginning of us being able to move past it. So we encourage everybody to get the vaccine when it's available and we will do everything in our power to make sure it's available to you and it's easy to get. Well, I do just want to reiterate, you know, how much we all appreciate what you folks are doing and that you had a lot of very difficult decisions to make over and over the last 10, 11 months, and uh, it's not getting any easier with a vaccine. So uh, we're here to support you and uh, look forward to getting those vaccines to more and more people uh, each week. Um, last question, I want to, you know, revisit what I've asked you about many times, and that's uh, the fact that there's a lot of anxiety and cases of depression uh, throughout our our youth population as a result of, in particular, the pandemic. And is there anything that parents should be looking for that might be a sign that their child is having a real problem, you know, and uh, maybe they need to take some action? So kids and teens are really hard to figure out because they don't always tell you their thoughts and feelings. So things to watch for are signs that, that – um, their mental health is changing as mood swings, withdrawing from friends or activities, um, either sleeping too much or not sleeping at all, uh, weight loss or gain, s severe risk-taking activities or substance abuse, um, dr drinking, um, other drugs, you know, uh, just plain old moodiness that's different than normal teenage moodiness. <laughs> um, but if anything, you know, there are things you can do to help kids get through this. So one of the things is to maintain a normal routine. 
you know, kids really do thrive on knowing their boundaries and routines. And so getting up and going to bed at the same time, not, you know, because they're not going to school, letting them sleep in, you know, stay up late and sleep in, trying to keep a routine, making sure they get dressed every day. If you, you know, if they're just laying around in their pajamas all day, you know, that adds to depression, eating regular meals, staying physically active, and then also encouraging them to talk, you know, and just listening to their feelings and not contradicting their feelings or trying to explain their feelings. Just listen and and um, and encourage them that, that you're there to hear no matter what they have to say. And I, and I always believe in being honest and open with kids and accurate because they're going to hear things. And if, if they're hearing it other places, it's much more scary than if they're hearing it directly from you. So if they have questions, answer them to the best of your ability. We don't have all the answers, and but we just have to be honest about that. Kids can understand that what they can't understand is mixed messages or not hearing things directly. And, you know, just help your kids to know that, you know, we're all in this together and that they're still important and that they will, you know, that we'll make, make a good time out of the things that we're doing now. And we'll take this opportunity to be closer while we're together now because we'll all be busy again and they'll be off doing their own thing and you won't be as close. So look for all the good things about what's going on now. But if your kid really needs help, you're again, they can call, um, for help through our free assessment at our behavioral health, Linden Oaks Behavioral Health, which is uh, offers a 24-hour call line for anybody who may have a question or a concern. They're happy to answer those questions, or if they, anybody would like a free assessment, um, the number is 630-305-5027. Again, 630-305-5027. And I also wanted to say, Anybody who has experienced COVID, there are a lot, they're finding a lot of neurological um, conditions post-COVID, so signs of depression, signs of anxiety, signs of even um, delusions or manic behavior or psychosis. So if if you're seeing this, this is not uncommon. It's, it is actually a post-COVID response. And um, just so people are aware, that is something that has been seen in the literature. And is there an ability for... Uh these professionals to do at least an initial assessment um, remotely? Yes, they do have um, video visits as well. Well, thanks for that. And uh, thanks for spending some time with us. And thanks for not hanging up when we keep asking you the tough questions uh, and, uh, <laughs> about the vaccine. And uh, I hope you understand that we're, uh, we're all in it together. We are all in it together, and I am just so grateful that you're doing these podcasts for our communities because can you imagine if you were at home and you were listening to all the different varying information on TV and you didn't have a source to go to to find out what's really happening here in our area and what what do I need to know to keep my family safe or to even know what the future is going to bring in terms of vaccines or when we're going to change what we currently have to do. The information changes so quickly every day for us and we're getting direct information. It's got to be so confusing to the public. So I appreciate you giving us this opportunity to share everything and for the people in the community to have you as a resource. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. And I'm glad to do it. And I know there's a lot of great resources uh, available on your website as well. So uh, thanks again for spending time with us. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. You too. Have a great week. And now 
it's time for another installment of One Ponce a Time with lowdown legend PK and his overly enthused yesteryear expert friend, Elmhurst History Museum director, Dave Oberg. Hey, boys and girls. Did you know that One Ponce a Time Elmhurst was home to one of Illinois' premier roller skating rinks? From 1956 to 1989, the Elm Roller Rink sign, a giant roller skate, beckoned avid skaters from Chicago and the suburbs. With its state-of-the-art 20,000-square-foot hard maple floor, the Elm was one of Chicagoland's biggest rinks, a massive pipe organ played by talented musicians such as Tony Talman and Paul Swiderski set the tempo for casual skaters and competitive members of the Elm Skate Club. All right, so let's dig a little deeper. Yeah, so roller skating dates back to the 19th century, but its heyday came in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. In mid-century America, roller skating was the nation's number one participatory sport, and avid skaters actually called themselves rink rats. Now, Chicago is the epicenter of the movement, and popular rinks like the Armory, the White Palace, and the Riverview Rink were just a quick train ride away. But as the suburbs grew, skating rinks moved west, and none could hold a candle to the elm. When Bill and Lynn Fuchs built the elm, they invested in a state-of-the-art hard maple floor with layers of sound-deadening material beneath. This greatly reduced noise and gave skaters a smooth surface upon which to perform, aided by a fine coat of rosin. They also invested in a custom 1,000-pipe Wurlitzer organ the size of a double-wide garage, which was suspended above the floor. The master of the organ was Tony Tallman, who treated the Wurlitzer the way a car enthusiast might treat a high-performance automobile. He constantly tinkered with and customized the organ, turning it into a one-of-a-kind instrument. Tallman provided the tempo for casual and competitive skaters for more than two decades. And one aficionado would note, you didn't just hear the music, you could feel it. Skate guards kept decorum, and skaters often dressed in elaborate costumes, performed complex artistic and dance routines. Now, the Elm was the incubator for several generations of very talented, competitive skaters. Members of the Elm Skate Club participated in artistic dance and speed skating competitions sanctioned by the Roller Skate Rink Owners Association. The Elm Skate Club led its division for six years with a bumper crop of highly skilled athletic performers. In the late 60s and early 70s, roller rinks began to see a decline in attendance, but disco brought them roaring back to life. With its lush sound and four-on-the-floor beat, disco proved very well suited to skate dancing, and a new craze began. The craze ended with the 70s. Events like the infamous disco demolition heralded not only the end of the music, but the end of the rinks themselves. In the 1980s, attendance began to decline. The rinks were large and very difficult to maintain. Liability insurance proved harder and harder to get for a pastime that involved more than a few falls, bumps, bruises, and the occasional more serious injury. Now, the Elm temporarily closed in 1985 when it looked like the owners wouldn't be able to get liability insurance and reopened again for a few years, but in 1989, it closed its famous green doors for the last time. Today, only a handful of rinks still dot the landscape in Chicago and the suburbs, but any good skater who experienced the Elm in its heyday will tell you that none of them could hold a candle to our beloved rink. I'll say... Dave, I mean, I remember uh, skidding a few knees there, and I love that place. It was right by the miniature golf, the bowling alley, and Dispenses Kitty Kingdom. That was like a whole entertainment campus over there. That uh, great... sounds that sounds great. You know, I was lucky enough. Uh, uh, they um, 
Lexington Square is where uh, uh, the Elm used to be. And they actually dedicated a tree uh, to Lynn Fuchs, um, uh, who's in residence there, uh, just shy of her 100th birthday, actually. Oh, nice. And doesn't the museum have an a exhibit coming on about this? Or, I'm sorry, it's a, a, a webcast or something, right? So yeah, we're, um, we, uh, uh, we're, we're doing a whole series of mini documentaries. These are kind of three and four minute shorts with a lot of historic footage. Uh, we've got interviews with this particular one we're about to do. And so we're gonna give a short history of the Elm. And with that, you're gonna get to actually hear from some of the folks that skated there in the heyday and see a lot of really cool rare pictures. So we're doing about one of these a week right now. That sounds like a lot of fun, especially for some of the people that spent some time there when they were growing up. Yeah, I wish I had seen it. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. The E-Town Lowdown brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right. Nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.